Hey, welcome to How to Write a Novel. A very nice, uh, pretty winter day. It's actually been a really mild winter this year that uh, it's almost mildly annoying to me because I just, I really do like winter. I didn't like it as a kid, I hated the cold, but now that I'm an adult, it's fun. It's like uh, that saying from Finland or wherever, that there is no bad weather, there's just bad gear, bad equipment, bad clothing. And I got the good clothing. I'm all set. It almost can't be too cold for me. So it's a little annoying this year that uh, it just won't get all the way there. It just won't be. What's the point of being in godforsaken Canada if you're not going to get nightmare winters? It's half of the fun. But because it's kind of warm out, it's nice. So uh, it just snowed last night. So it's like that nice, pretty, looks like a, a nature painting look. But there's also this nice babbling brook because because uh, it didn't freeze over. So I thought this would be an alright place to just stop and do a little podcast because I got something on my mind. So uh, I do this podcast with my mom. I mean, we started it years ago just as an excuse for me to call home when I was traveling. It was called the Calling Home Podcast. But since I've been stuck in my hometown, we kind of rebranded it. Now we call it revisiting, (laughs) and we just revisit old TV shows. Mostly because, I mean, I do find it kind of interesting where I learn all this stuff about the history of TV inadvertently, but it's not something I would have probably done on my own, you know? I just wanted to pick a topic that would keep my mom interested, so... Again, it's just an excuse to go visit her every week. That's also why it's called revisiting, because I revisit her every week. It's easy to not do those things otherwise. And I mean, especially, you know, this whole period I've been back and my dad died and it's like, uh, you know, it's good to go see my mom, make sure I go see her. So this is just a little routine. Every weekend we go watch an old TV show, do a podcast about it. And it's weird. Again, it's like one of these cases that uh, the podcast feed's doing all right, pretty solid. And the YouTube page, just every once in a while, it goes crazy. Like we did an episode about Perry Mason that got 10,000 views. Not all positive. You'd think that, like, angry commenters on the internet, when I envision them, I envision angry 12-year-olds, but uh, it turns out old people also. We didn't say anything bad about Perry Mason. We just didn't like it enough. Not enough for these people. So when you do say something bad about an old show, yikes. Prepare for the fucking geriatric brigade to give you some shit. But yeah, like I said, we just learn a lot about... TV stuff, and I found some shows I legitimately really liked, like The Waltons, you know? I thought I knew what The Waltons was. Or Leave it to Beaver is another good example. I thought both of those shows were just, uh, you know, corny do-gooder shows about uh, the beauty of family or whatever, but they're actually both quite realistic portrayals of their given era of the 50s in Leave it to Beaver's case, or the Depression in The Waltons' case. And of course, you know, everything turns out okay in the end in those shows, but they go through some tough times, and they're just really well done. Like a really well-made classic TV show, I like better than modern shows. Modern shows have this sheen to them that is just very generic and very fake-feeling. Anyway, that's a side thing. If you're at all interested in that podcast, uh, it's called Revisiting, or go to keithcourage.com, there's a link right there. But... Because we do these old TV shows, we were doing uh, old Nero Wolf and uh, Sherlock Holmes shows, you know, detective stuff. So we did a rare 
dip into film. I thought I'd show her Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson mystery movie, just to show what like a modern day mystery is like compared to these classic versions. And Knives Out is amazing. I also really like his movie Looper. I recommend both of those extremely highly. Really, really good movies. But the sequel to Knives Out came out. It's called Glass Onion. So I was like, all right, well, we should watch that too because we both enjoyed Knives Out so much. And uh, didn't go so well with Glass Onion. The reviews are pretty good, but I didn't like it. And uh, there's many reasons. So again, we get into it in that other podcast. But the one that I want to bring up here because I think it's so valuable as a something to keep in mind as a writer. One of the many things that I thought made Glass Onion far, far lesser than Knives Out is the idea of the paper tiger. I don't know where that saying came from, but it's a very useful saying. Where a paper tiger is just a straw man, you know? It's uh, a character you set up to be thin and to be shallow and to be sort of a mockery of a given standpoint or a given personality type. You know, a cliche, a stereotype, an easily knocked down thing. Instead of paper tiger, think of a paper doll. You know, uh, uh, it's flimsy. Flimsy is the way to put it. And it's something you should never do as a writer. It's just, uh, there's no value in it whatsoever. So in the case of Glass Onion, it's a murder mystery, and it's, uh, I won't give away the specifics of the movie, but the characters in this movie are, it's funny because Knives Out was so well-developed, and all the characters were so believable and so realistic and so multifaceted, where in Glass Onion, you've got a big, muscly, men's rights activist guy which is a very interesting archetype. It's a relatively recent thing. And uh, what it made me think of right away is there's this guy named Elliot Hulse on YouTube who I followed for a while and he kind of got me into exercise. The first guy who ever got me interested in exercise. And he had all these interesting points and just neat things that he said. But he, I don't know, when you hear men's right activists, he's not that necessarily. He's just I guess why I first liked him is because he was kind of the opposite of that. He was very soft. Where, I think how I found him, it was this video about getting over a breakup. And all the advice I saw people give on any front, from any side, about getting over a breakup all just seemed weird and uh, I didn't understand what they were talking about. Where what Elliot Hulse said was, you should pray for this person. Which I'm not at all religious, but Still, already, I'm like, okay, I'm listening, though. No one else has said that. That's interesting. And he said, the best thing you can do, don't try to not how to get this girl back or even how to get her out of your mind. Just pray for her each night and pray that she gets what she would like to have in life, that she gets to where she's trying to get to, that she finds whatever power and strength and opportunity and personal development, whatever it is that she's looking for in life, pray that she gets it. And by taking this, oh, there's a guy in a bicycle. Hello. I'm, uh, I'm not sure how easy it is to get across here. There's like water and then a fallen tree, so it- Yeah, the tree's the problem. I think right here is the- Oh yeah, that's probably not so bad. 
he made it across. <laughs> so yeah, by taking this non-confrontational view of your breakup, you know, it's just the healthier way to move forward. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. What an, an interesting take on things. And like, not at all like what anyone else said. And then I was only listening. I was just, you know, one of those listening to YouTube videos, listening to a playlist or something. So I was like, who is that guy? And I went and looked him up and he's this big muscle guy. And I was like, what the hell? I didn't expect that. That's interesting. So I followed him for a while, but ultimately, ultimately I didn't stick with him because, I mean, it got weird. It just got, you know, he just always exploring different avenues and different thought processes. And a lot of it did kind of fall into this kind of stuff about, you know, uh, what is a man's role in society? What's it mean now to be male in our modern society? Is there any value in our testosterone-fueled fucking desires and uh, the ways that we uh, express ourselves are, are not necessarily... Uh, they don't fit anymore with the, the calm, pacified world that we have. You know, interesting stuff. Stuff that is true. I don't know what you do about it. But then... Where it really got weird is during the pandemic, I feel like he was just losing his mind, poor Elliot, because he uh, just, you know, I don't know, got into guns and became a fucking, a stereotypical American, just talking about, uh, no offense America, but talking about COVID vaccine fucking conspiracy theories and all this shit, and I was like, all right, I think I'm out. <laughs> Maybe I'll check back in with you in a few years from now, but I don't even know what you're fucking talking about anymore, dude. But the point is, he's one of these big muscular... I mean, the term men's rights activist or whatever, I mean, he's not really that. I don't even know what that is, really. But he is, he was a male-centric person, I guess. He was trying to help men specifically through first through exercise and that developed into through philosophy or whatever and some of it was really interesting because that was something that I mean you can't just not talk about it you know it's this important facet of things that is oftentimes not talked about but yeah like I said ultimately ultimately as like I, I can't hang on to this this bucking bronco anymore can't stay on this ride but still an interesting person, a very interesting figure, where the character in Glass Onion, who was played by Dave Bautista, who's a great actor, I really like that guy, but just so super one-dimensional, where he's just got these, men are supposed to be first, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then to undercut it, he has this commandeering mother who, don't you talk to your mom that way, <laughs> watch your mouth, you know? And it's like, okay, that's a little bit funny, but it really feels like a sketch. It feels like a comedy bit. It doesn't feel like a real person. It doesn't feel like a real situation. It's just like a surface level. It feels like Ryan Johnson saw these guys on YouTube and just wants to make fun of them. Like, eh, this is silly. Oh, a big muscle guy talking about men all the time. Fuck you. I bet if your mom told you to shut up, you'd shut up. Which, hey, I mean, you know, again, just sort of a point there. But it's just, it's really played really shallowly, really one note, really one dimensional. Just made this character not feel real. Then you got Kate Hudson's character, who's uh, an influencer, big famous influencer, basically like a Kardashian, you know, she's on magazine covers and stuff. But she's just beyond dumb, so dumb, and where it just... And it was like, again, once in a while there's a funny line in the movie because of it. 
But the one that really got me, because I couldn't believe that they played this straight, like this was supposed to be legit, is she has this, you know, getting canceled in the media problem because she has this line of sweatpants and one of her managers emailed her and said, hey, by the way, this, uh, this factory where you're making the sweatpants is one of the uh, most notorious sweatshops in wherever, wherever this place was. And she signed off on it like, right on, sounds good. Not because she's an evil person who uh, just wanted to make cheap sweatpants, but because she thought the term sweatshop meant a place where you make sweatpants. Which is so dumb. That is so dumb. No one thinks that. No one in the history of Earth thinks that. A person who was born three days ago and just instantly matured to fucking adulthood they might find the term mildly confusing but they still wouldn't think that it's just so beyond dumb and again if you take the example the real life example of like the kardashians the kardashians are not dumb you know you don't get that famous and you're not that successful if you're not a clever person And again, it's just like a tiresome character. What is this tropey character that is just just there to be knocked down, just there to be made fun of? And then Edward Norton is like the main character of this movie, and he's supposed to be this big fucking Elon Musk type guy. And the entire fucking movie is kind of designed just to call that guy dumb. He deliberately misuses words a, a bunch. There's a big speech at the end of the movie about how dumb he is and about all the words he misused and all the, just how he's an idiot. And it's clearly just Ryan Johnson trying to, just being annoyed at Elon Musk and just wanting to say, you're an idiot, fuck you, you dummy. But again, man, you don't get to be Bill Gates. You don't get to be Steve Jobs. You don't get to be Elon Musk if you're just plainly stupid, you know? You can be eccentric, you can be a weird person, you can have strange ideas that don't always connect with reality. You can't just be dumb. It doesn't work. And it's just like, it starts to paint this picture of like, what the fuck is going on, Ryan Johnson? Why did you write all these characters this way? Why is everyone a paper tiger? Is this really what you think of these people that are clearly just across from you on the philosophical spectrum? You know, just people that are across from you that you disagree with. Is this all you can see of them? Is this all you can see of their position? Because at a certain point, it just makes Ryan Johnson, the author, seem dumb. You know, it doesn't make me think like, oh yeah, men's right activists, they are dumb. Oh yeah, fucking celebrity influencers, they are dumb. Oh yeah, tech moguls, they are dumb. It doesn't do any of that. It makes me think, Ryan Johnson, are you dumb? Are you dumb? You expect me to believe this? You expect me to buy into this shit? What the fuck, dude? <laughs> you know? It has the opposite of the intended effect. And it reminds me a lot of, I've brought up before how, back in the day when I was a teenager and I found out about Atlas Shrugged, the Ayn Rand book, which I feel a bit lucky that I had no idea who she was or anything about this book before I read it because it's a very unpopular book. She's a very 
I would say divisive, but I don't even think divisive. I don't think anybody seems to really like Ayn Rand. Everyone hates her. <laughs> Everyone hates her books. But it's very much a case of, I mean, you can just tell by the way people talk about her books, you can tell who's read them and who hasn't, you know? But I understand, you know, because that's why I'm glad I went in blind. If I had gone in with the sort of groundwork most people have, which is, I don't know, you go to university or you go to college and you just, it's just in the air. You just get this vibe that like, no, no, these are the serious philosopher authors, you know, these are the ones, read Sartre, read Nietzsche, read Marx, read whatever, but don't read Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand's stupid. Ayn Rand sucks. Fuck Ayn Rand. And it is really hard when everybody I mean, that idea is just there. When everyone seems to be putting forth that idea, it's very hard to shake that, you know? Like, I do wonder what I would have thought if I had read her book afterward. I probably wouldn't have. Like, I feel like I would have just done kind of what everyone does. I would have just assumed, yeah, yeah, that's some dumb shit. Only idiots read that shit. And I just probably wouldn't have read it, and I just would have gone along. Like, every time I heard the occasional Ayn Rand joke, like, ah, yeah, right, ha, that's that shit. That's that shit that fucking people read. What the fuck is that? But because I went in blind and I knew nothing, I just uh, got to have a, I mean, a more kind of, I don't know how to say it, I don't know, just, uh, I had my own experience with it, I guess. And there's so much good stuff in those books, so much stuff that just more and more as the years go by, just is, continues to be relevant about individual freedom and personal development and personal achievement. And just on a very base level, just having more of a respect for the capitalist system and how it works and that you don't get to be a big industrialist or you don't get to be a famous inventor by exploiting people, you know? There's this weird idea that like you only get to the top by climbing up the fucking mountain of skull and bones of your defeated enemies and it's just not true. And that for all the problems and all the faults our modern society has, there's an incredible amount of good that comes of it. Just this super low poverty level we have and super low death rate. And all this stuff that just is not the case in other systems. It was just uh, nice to know that despite the fact that there's a lot of things about capitalism that I do not like and I would like to have change, it's not valuable to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? There's a lot that is working with this. And just this idea that, like, I don't know, I really liked her sort of way of describing that, uh, you know, people that want to bring down the current system. If you take it a little further, it's like, okay, but then who's in charge of the next system? Oh, it happens to be you? <laughs> you know, what a coincidence. Like, that is kind of how it always seems to go over and over. However, despite the fact that I got a lot out of Ayn Rand books, it's this weird case where I don't necessarily recommend them to people because there's a lot to untangle in there. There's a lot of fucking bullshit along with the stuff that was kind of good. And I don't particularly get along with Ayn Rand fans, <laughs> you know, it's ironic, but I, I feel like I get along better with people who don't like Ayn Rand. Because people who do like Ayn Rand, I'm like, hmm, I don't know, did you really cross the fucking T's and dot all the I's? Have you really done the homework here? Because there's a lot of weird shit in those books. And one of the cases where I totally agree 
with people who don't like Ayn Rand books is her use of the paper tiger. It's terrible in those books. You know, she paints this picture of her good guys are very interesting, very interesting takes on like, here's an industrialist and here's what his life is like and here's the struggles he has and here's how he got to where he was and here's a, you know, she paints a picture of why you shouldn't just hate that guy because he actually did a lot to help you inadvertently, you know, and by by building a personal empire, by helping oneself, you do help society. If you just try to give everything you own away and you just spread the wealth, everyone has nothing, <laughs> you know? There's a lot of benefit to building your own personal life and out of that flows all of these benefits. That part's really good, but then her her like antagonist characters where she's like okay here here's where I want to show the people I don't agree with you know like uh, people that try to get power through disingenuous ideas or people that try to get power through you know uh, like a socialist system where just conveniently they happen to be at the top of the socialist system but she writes these people like they're the dumbest fucks that have ever fucked, <laughs> you know? And it's so tiresome, it's so annoying. I think that's the main thing. Last time I tried to read Atlas Shrugged, which was a few years ago, and I was like, I, I, think, I, I think I'm out. I mean, it's a huge book anyway, but I'm like, I don't think I will ever bother reading this again because the quote unquote bad guy characters, she just writes them to be so fucking stupid. And it's so disingenuous. It's exactly the same situation as these dumb characters in Glass Onion. It's like, really? Really, Ayn Rand? That's the best you could see out of these people? I really think what you should do... I mean, I don't know. I'm a little suspect of the whole antagonist-protagonist idea anyway. This book I'm writing now, you know, because I'm, I'm such a genius. I'm not making the mistakes that these other people have made. But, I mean, I just really don't have an antagonist and a protagonist. The bad guys aren't bad. They didn't really do anything wrong. The good person isn't that good. She's going to do some weird fucked up shit. You know, so maybe, maybe the story will be indistinct to people and they won't like it or whatever. But if you, if you really do want to have, okay, it's me versus them. I got my ideas and here's my ideas that I'm going to present. And I'm also going to paint a picture of your ideas and show why your ideas don't work. If that's really what you want to do to write a fucking philosophical treatise in a fucking novel form. Not only for the benefit of your quote unquote enemies, but for the benefit of yourself. What you need to do is write the best version of the antagonist as possible. You have to take these people that have the ideas that oppose your ideas and you gotta fucking ruminate on that and you've gotta put yourself in their shoes and you've gotta make the best version of them. You gotta make the best version of the men's right activist. You gotta make the best version of the celebrity influencer. You gotta make the best version of the tech industrialist. You gotta take the best version of the socialist crusader. You got to take the best version of all of these people. And you've got to present them in your story 
And then, if you can still out-argue them in your story, congratulations, you've done it. But to me, that's, that's the bare minimum you've got to do. You've got to try your hardest to defend the other side, to show the other side in its best light. Otherwise, why are you even bothering? Because if you just make these, these flat characters with these one-dimensional ideas and then you knock those down, nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit, <laughs> you know? Like, if I had to pick a big reason why I think Ayn Rand has just really not been absorbed into society or has not really... I mean, she's around. People know who she is. She sold a lot of books. There's a lot of famous-ass influential people that like her stuff. But it's just not there at the same level that other famous philosophers are. And it probably never will be. And I don't necessarily think it's because of her positive ideas, because those, if anything, have become less and less controversial. What was kind of controversial during McCarthyism is not at all controversial anymore. We have a way better understanding of the benefits of capitalism and the benefits of individual rights and individual freedom and personal development and personal growth. I mean, when she was writing her books, self-esteem was barely a fucking term. That, to me, is not what's controversial about her stuff. That's the kind of stuff that, if anything, might have taken root and might have caught on decades later. I think why her books never caught on and probably never will is because of the other side. It's because if you're reading this book and you see an antagonistic version of you, you know, of your thoughts and your philosophies and your ideas that are different than hers. But she's not guiding you toward the stuff that she thinks. She's not taking you by the hand and taking you down the steps into the dark cellar of these weird new ideas. She's just pushing you down the stairs. She's just saying, fuck you, you're an idiot, and kicking you into the cellar. <laughs> and it's like no one likes that. No one wants to read that. And who's that valuable for? That's not valuable for anybody except, like I said, these Ayn Rand fans that I really don't get along with. Because if, you, if you're okay with that, you know, if you don't recognize that in her writing, then you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, who's got time for that? It's such a shame. It's such a waste. And it's just weird that smart people do this. Ryan Johnson is clearly a smart person. Looper is fucking crazy. That movie is like clockwork. It's like the way they describe Back to the Future as like this perfect little time travel clockwork movie. Looper is another one of those. It runs by different time travel rules, but it's like just perfect. It's one of these movies, the more you watch it, and you start to recognize all of the references to parenthood and the connections between generations and all this stuff going on in this movie. It's like, this is fucking genius. This is amazing. And Knives Out, genius, amazing. I mean, his Star Wars movie didn't turn out, but no one's Star Wars movie has ever turned out. So that's, I mean, what can you do? Ayn Rand, clearly not a dumb person. I used to like these anecdotes people would have where they would meet her at a party and they'd start talking to her and she just had this ability within a few minutes of talking to you to basically skip to the end. Like, we could sit here and talk about this for three hours, but this is where we're going to get to. 
this is your worldview. You know, I know who you are. I know where you come from. I know what paths you've gone down to have the thoughts that you have. And here's what they are. And she'd just lay it out. And people would be like, holy shit. I thought I was a unique snowflake. She just fucking <laughs> dissected my whole goddamn stupid life. And maybe that's why. Maybe because she was able to do that, she felt like, hey, I got your number. I don't need to respect your side of the argument, so I'm just going to write you as an idiot. But it was a big mistake. It was a bad thing to do. It was a bad choice. And it's not necessary. If you have something valuable to say, again, man, have some respect for yourself. You know, believe in your own ideas enough that you're willing to have people fight your ideas, even within your own work. Don't write paper tigers. Make your antagonist, make your villain, make your bad guy, whatever term you want to use. Don't just show the dumb version of that person. Don't just take the dumb version of that philosophy or that idea or that worldview or that archetype. If you're so fucking smart, <laughs> then you can do better than that. You can make them the best version of themselves. And then just imagine that, right? So say you're, say, I don't know, again, who knows what the actual philosophical ideas are. Just whatever your big idea is that you're trying to put forth and you want to change the minds of people that see things a different way. When those people read your story, won't it be better for them to recognize themselves in this story? If they see the antagonist in the story, but it is them. It feels like them. It feels like a real representation of what they think and where they come from and what they believe is important. And it can cause them to reframe things, to rethink things. Isn't that valuable? Whereas if they read the story and the version of them is just this fucking slack-jawed fool, is that going to make the scales fall from their eyes? <laughs> of course it's not, because they're not even going to recognize that as themselves because it isn't them. It's just some bullshit that you made up, some lazy shit. So the people who disagree with you are just going to continue to disagree with you. And the people who agree with you are still going to be put off because it's like, is this, is this my champion? Is this the person who's championing my ideas when this is the best they can offer? is to shoot down these easy targets. You know, in the case of an Ayn Rand book, I just feel dumb reading it, where I'm like, yeah, you got some neat ideas in here, but, but rather than take them into a legitimate gladiatorial fucking philosophy combat field, instead you're just, you're just kicking a sleeping dog. It's fucking stupid. And in the case of like a movie like Glass Onion, you know, much smaller stakes than uh, world-spanning philosophy, but it's impossible to invest in this story when every character feels fake and they all feel phony. And I, I can't focus on the movie and I can't focus on the story. The whole time I'm just focusing on the author. And I'm wondering, author, what the fuck is your problem? What is wrong with you? <laughs> you know? I mean, you can be against these people, you can dislike these people, but you can't just act like they're dumb. You can't just act like they're stupid. You can't just act like they don't have a legitimate reason for being, that they don't have 
an intelligent path they went down to get to where they are. It's just a waste of everyone's time. So that's that episode. Paper Tigers, man. Don't do it. Don't write them. Do not write them. Again, I mean, I feel like maybe you should go a step further, and if you've just got a good guy and a bad guy, and you've got a pro-philosophy and a con-philosophy, maybe you shouldn't do that anyway, because uh, who's going to buy into that? Like, you know, the people that buy into that, are those really the people you want on your side? Are those really the soldiers you want in your army? I wouldn't. But just don't do it even just for the sake of writing a story that is interesting to read. It's not interesting to read about your bash sessions against, you know, your dim view of your, of your opponents. It's fucking stupid and it's a waste of time. I guess I could go on, but I've probably already repeated myself eight fucking times over. So let's end with the Beck song, Paper Tiger. It's not at all about this topic, but uh, it's uh, in the style of Serge Gainsborough. It's a fucking real good song. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Just like a paper tiger Torn apart by idle hands Through the helter-skelter morning Fix yourself
one road back to civilization But there's no road back